in the book of Ephesians. We have been dialoguing back and forth about how that it's really important for us as a church and as a believer and as a person who claims to know and to follow Jesus that we really understand who we are. And that Paul understands the tension um, that many of us face in living this life that is a vapor as we simultaneously are in this world but not of it. That we are, yes, in a, a, a status with God, then that, that can never be increased upon. That you are as most loved as you're ever going to be loved. That uh, you are more righteous than you will ever be righteous in and through the person and work of Jesus. And yet we know that all of that is going to come to complete fruition in the glorification when Jesus comes back for his bride. And yet many of the issues that we wrestle with and um, are tempted to drift toward are um, really at its rootedness uh, a case of mistaken identity. And so Paul is spending the first three chapters, and, and notice, I want you to get this, do not lose the pastor's heart. When Paul was writing to this letter to the church at Ephesus, he was not doing so in the matter of chapter and verse. He was not throwing out a, a systematic treatise of, of who God is or who you are, even though there is theology and doctrine there. He is writing a letter. Dear so-and-so, love Paul. And so Paul, being a good pastor, being a good shepherd, knows as well that it, the congregations are struggling with these sorts of issues, and when the world is coming against them and persecuting them, that our identity becomes even more of a crisis. So I'm going to spend this Sunday and next Sunday working through these first few verses of chapter 3 as Paul is continuing to talk about identity. He is yet to tell us really anything to do. That's in chapter 4 through 6. But at this stage, in this playing in the game, he is still talking about who we are in Jesus. Because really our practice becomes false worship if we first and foremost do not understand who we are are in Jesus. And we are a people who are prone to put the practical before the personhood of God. So we must constantly be reminded of those truths here this morning as we dive into this text. Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus in chapter 3, verse 1, says very briefly, for this reason... For this reason, well, be good Bible study readers is to ask the question is, is, well, what is the reason, Paul? You put a, uh, at the end, that means question, right? So we ask that question, well, what is the, the reason that you are writing this, that you are doing this? And Paul has spent, over, we have talked about over the last several weeks, this idea in beginning in chapter 2, he reminds us of kind of two constant paradigms, that once we were dead in our sins, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, but we have been made alive. He goes on from there in the later chapters that myself, I preached two sermons on, and Pastor Justin um, preached a text, I think actually two, not three. But we preached uh, a section through verses 11 through verse 22, looking at this massive idea that, that God and the gospel and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ has not only reconciled us to God, but it has also reconciled the nations for the glory of God. And we worked through that 
very difficult text of, of us that it's very hard for us to grasp that, that Paul is confronting this deep-seated racism that is within the community, within the nations, that if you were not a Jew, that you were the dog of the planet. And so if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. So Jews and Gentiles were constantly in physical, emotionally, spiritual, racial tension and war with each other. And yet Paul says at the end of which Pastor Justin preached faithfully the last time that we gathered, this text. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into the holy temple and the Lord. In him you also are being built together into the dwelling place for God by the Spirit." So for a point of illustration that those of us, we are all stones that have been hewn and cut to different shapes and, and sizes. We are different colors. We have been given different talents and different abilities. And yet God is taking what the world would say is divisive and is cementing us together by the very flesh, bone, blood, and glory of Jesus. In such a way that a new temple, not one of brick and mortar, but of persons, witnesses and reflects to the, the, the culture and to the world this beautiful creation that is the body of Christ. So Paul says it is for this reason a new temple is being built. We are being built together. We are truly united in Christ. And to be united in Christ is to be united in the body of Christ, which is what? The church. The church. We live in a culture, ladies and gentlemen, inside of America where the church is not very valuable to many people. And yet she is the bride of Christ. She's the, the gift that God is giving our Lord and Savior, precious Jesus. His, his bridal gift, the groom's gift, is the church. And yet for many of us, the church is way down the list. It is not of high priority. And yet what is... What does Paul say? For this reason, for God's glory, for the person and work of Jesus, for the church, for this very reason. In, in, in a world that is divided over race and gender and politics and economics and status and all these things, the church is to be countercultural. Where enemies are not united in Jesus, are now united in Jesus. Once your enemy, now seated at the table. What a picture of us as individuals, yes, but even more so corporately. We were once his enemies. But now we are seated at his very table as heirs of Christ. The adopted ones, the chosen ones, the predestined ones, the, the inherited ones. All of these truths that we've been learning about in our identity that we can quickly grab a hold of and, and cling to such things that you are the son of God, that you are the daughter of God, 
that you were once his enemy, now his child. That we are, like the church I grew up in, the saved ones. Uh, uh. Okay? We can easily grasp of those things, and I want you to get this morning that those are all beautiful attributes and reflections of your identity in Jesus. But I also want you to get one as Paul gets, and that is that our identity is not only of those things, but is an identity that can easily be defined as being a prisoner for Jesus. A prisoner for Christ Jesus. When we think about a prisoner, we can think about all different sorts of of things. We can think about a person in a jail. We can think about a person inside of a dungeon. We we get this definition of what it means to be a prisoner is is someone that is is bound. It is someone that is in bonds. They're in chains. They're chained to something. They're a captive. They are a prisoner. And when Paul is is writing this letter, he mentions to them in several occasions this image of him being being a prisoner, but specifically a prisoner for Jesus. Now, it is interesting that when Paul writes this, where is he? He is in prison. Paul is going to spend about two years in Caesarea Philippi, um, or in Caesarea, and in, in this place he's going to be put into a jail, and then he's going to be taken from there, and he's going to be placed into a Roman jail for another two to three years, so upwards between four and five years. This man is going to be imprisoned, and the members of Ephesus, which we'll get to next year, know of this truth. And so this man is literally in bondage. He is literally, possibly, even chained to a Roman guard when he writes this, and you kind of get this imagery inside of the, the book of Philippians, that even Caesar's, like his main guys, like the ninjas for Caesar, are the ones that are put in charge of watching after this guy named Paul. And yet, even while in chains, what does Paul do? For a time, he's able to write these letters, of which he does. The Bible also clearly states that, that Paul, I mean, you've got to hate this if you're an atheist or a pagan, and you're chained to a dude that will not shut up about preaching you the gospel in so much that the book of Philippians says that all of the, the Caesar's Roman kind of guards hear the gospel. And yet, in this passage, when Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of or for Christ Jesus, notice what he doesn't say. Paul doesn't say here in this passage, he mentions nothing of his physical environment. He mentions nothing of his physical bondage and chains. No, Paul doesn't say that he is a, in bondage and imprisoned to the Jewish leaders who initiated this thought. No, he does not say that he is in bondage and imprisoned to Caesar or to the Romans. All of that is, is nothing compared to where he is ultimately bound to, what he is ultimately captivated by, are not, is not Caesar, it is not the Jews, it is Jesus. A prisoner for Christ Jesus. Paul will use this term quite a bit in his writing. If you've ever read the book of Philemon, or he, he says in uh, Philemon 1.1, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. See, to Paul, um, he, did, he did not just see this as, again, a physical issue for them, but he actually saw it as a part of his identity, he could obviously say when you were to come up and to, to meet Paul, 
it would not have surprised me at all if one of the things if, that he said, hey, man, I, my name is Paul, and I'm a prisoner of Jesus. I'm a prisoner for Jesus. See, Paul saw this at, at one of the core beings, or the one of the core truths that defined this man was this idea that he was a prisoner. It was his identity. It was his, his AKA, the prisoner of the Messiah. And he take great pride in knowing that he was right where God wanted him and willed him to be. And so though physically, yes, in chains, there was a greater chain that he was connected to, a greater cornerstone, a greater wall, a greater God than the Lord of Caesar. It was the true Lord, the God of gods, the great I am. And Paul, is in the midst of all of this chaos going around him, is, is tethered to God. And he found great hope inside of that truth. See, Paul understood this. He, he understood that I was once Saul the mighty. But now I'm Saul, or excuse me, now I'm Paul the small. He understood that he was once served by many others. But now, because of Christ, he now serves. Paul understood that once I was a, a persecutor of Christians. I was a terrorist against the very mess, mission and message of Jesus and his followers. So I've gone from now this persecutor to now I am a proclaimer of that same messenger. I was once imprisoned to sin, Satan, and death, but now I am a prisoner of the Lord Jesus. Paul was bound to Jesus. you got to get this. It was who he was. It was not merely a Sunday morning relationship with Jesus. It was not merely a, a Wednesday night if we feel like it and all the planets align that we'll make it to MC relationship with Jesus. Being bound to Jesus was, was everything to this man. It was everything. It defined who he was, that he and his heart had been arrested by God himself. He was unworthy to be called son. And yet his heart is captivated by Jesus. Because Paul was bound to Jesus, and because being his prisoner was who he was, it therefore dictated everything that he did. See, prisoners are at the mercy of the jailer. Prisoners are, are at the mercy of the system. And Paul understood this very, very much so that everything that he was going to do was not going to be because of him, but it was ultimately going to be because of Jesus and his will. Look at what he says here. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of, of the stewardship of God's grace, that was given to me for you. Most scholars believe that when Paul was writing this letter, that actually when he begins in chapter 3, verse 1, that he's about to pray as he did in an earlier chapter. He kind of says these things and he prays for the church. That, that Paul, that letter, or chapter 3, is actually the beginning of a prayer. And like most preachers, I believe this gives me hope because Paul has ADD here, and, and he begins his prayer by saying, for this reason I, Paul, and he goes to pray, and he digresses for the next several verses. Something new came to his mind. Hey, 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 before I pray, 
Like last night, I went to my parents' house. My mom's known for making some famous hamburgers of hers. We went to her house, and we're sitting there at the table. Mom, I, it's like trying to, you know, pull in someone to get the, her to actually sit down with us and eat because she's being that hospitable mom running around the table. I'm like, Mom, come sit down. I look at my family and everybody, and I'm like, all right, let's, let's, let's pray here. And so I, I start to pray but mom doesn't know I'm praying, right? So we're all, you know, the Shekinah glory of God is resting over my parents' table at this moment. And then my mom turns around and goes, hey, Eric, blah, blah, blah. And my dad is like, oh, and mom, oh. all right, like God's going to strike her down, Okay. But how many of us, as we begin to pray, um, become distracted by, by not good things? And yet Paul is, is not distracted in his prayer by unholiness. Paul is distracted in prayer by holiness. That he loves these people. And so he's going to come back to his prayer in verse 14, which we'll get to in about two weeks. And Paul is going to pray, but he, he breaks into this idea because he, he, he wants them to get that he has been given a specific calling in his imprisonment to Christ. That he's going to do something for them. He uses this terminology um, that you, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace. Some would say or translate it administrator, the manager, that God has given a specific task to this man named Paul for him to do. And he is bound to Jesus and he is bound to the mission. He is the steward of it. He is the manager of it. Anytime that we use the word stewarding of something, it carries with it an implication that was initially given, what was initially given was not the stewards to begin with. It means and it holds to the idea that it is owned by someone or something else, and that responsibility is then given to XYZ and it is their responsibility to divvy that out. At T4G, they, they do these, they give away like tons of books and um, they ask these pastors to stand up. If you've been pastoring for 10 years, stand up. If you've been pastoring for 30 years, stand up. And they get all the way up to like 50 years and the only person left standing is a guy named John MacArthur. Okay, he's a pastor out at Grace to You, uh, Grace Bible Church out in California. A lot of people have been greatly. And so they bring up John MacArthur up onto the stage and they wheel out all these free books they're going to give John MacArthur. And there was this pastor giggle amongst 12,000 of us as the books that they brought out were all of John MacArthur's commentaries that he had written. And so they told Johnny Mac, they said, here's the deal, Johnny, you can either keep your books or you can give them away. Okay? It was, it was left up to him to, to then distribute those books as he saw fit. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus who is bound to Jesus, bound to the calling upon his life, is the steward of what? Read it to me. What's it say? Of God's grace. Did Paul earn grace? Was Paul the creator and institutor of grace? No, this is a gift of God, and God has given the gift of grace, and, and it is Paul's responsibility to then steward this gospel of grace to anyone and everyone that he meets, especially the Gentiles. Ownership. How many of you guys remember uh, in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents? 
briefly the parable of the talents. You've got this master. Um, he appears to have lots of money, and uh, he wants to invest in some good stewards. And so he gives one guy five talents. He says, pretty much, go, go multiply those five talents. He, he, te- he tells another guy, based on his ability and what he believes that he can do about this guy, he gives him two more talents. He tells them, all right, take those talents, multiply those talents, and then he gives another guy, like, one talent. And the Bible says that he goes along, the master goes along for a long time. And while he's away, the guy who was given five talents, guess what he does? Like he's wheeling and dealing. He's going to multiply the master's money. And that's exactly what he does. When the master shows back up, he says to that guy, good and faithful servant. He looks at the guy who gave two talents to, and guess what that guy? He takes those two talents, he goes, and he multiplies that out. He's a good investor. When the master shows up to, to get his cut of it, he says, well done, my, my good and faithful servant. You've been given little, but you've made much of it. Then he goes to the guy that he gave one talent to, and, and lo and behold, um, he shows up to kind of get his multiplied um, reward as this man was supposed to be stewarding it. And the guy says this, I know that you're a hard master. Now, I was really unsure what to do with this. And I didn't want to lose your money. I didn't want to lose your talent. I didn't want to lose your investment on me. So I just went out here and I, I, I dug a hole and I buried it. And when you showed up, I thought, man, you're going to be really happy with me. I've still got a talent, your talent. If you read the end of that parable, what does the master say? You'll be cast out to where there's darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. It's a picture of hell. Why? Because he was not a good steward. Because he did not take what the master had given him. He did not, one, the last guy, guess what he said? He, He did not understand who the master was. He was not bound to the master. He did not understand the generosity of the master. He did not understand that this is ultimately the master's money. It's the master's talent. And he did not understand the ultimate mission, right? That that we are bound to Jesus. We are bound to the calling and specific calling that he has placed on every one of our lives. And so the question will be, not are you good enough to enter into my glory, but were you faithful with what I gave you? Were you faithful with what I've called you to do? What I've called you to do? What I have given you? See, Paul understood that all of his time, there was no such thing. Paul understood that all his talents that Paul had weren't his. Paul understood that all the money that Paul had ultimately wasn't Paul's money, but all of it, not just 10%. I've got this friend, he says, well, I believe you don't even just, you know, give 10% of your tithes or your money, but you need to give 10% of your time too. Does that mean you're unfaithful? The other 90%? Or that if you give 10% to the the local body for the mission and vision of that local body that you can waste and squander and use sinfully? The other 90%? No, Paul, see, he understood that I'm completely consumed with Jesus and my relationship with him. I am bound to him. I am captive to him. And I'm also bound and captive by this mission. I will be a good steward of this gospel. I am going to broadcast it. I'm going to to lay it out before the Gentiles as God has shown us that he is bridging believing Jews and believing Gentiles into one body, the church. 
Paul was willing to die to himself. In other letters like Philippians and Titus, Paul will say something like this, I, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. What's interesting about this, I don't know why some translators put this in there and some don't. The actual Greek word there is doulos. It means to be a bond servant. Even James, remember this guy? James, the, the, not the, the disciple of James, but James, the brother of Jesus. James, who was a skeptic. Imagine showing up for your family reunion and all of a sudden your brother says, well, I'm the Messiah. James is a skeptic. Jesus' family is, they're skeptical. I mean, they're constantly, when Jesus starts to open up his mouth, what are they constantly doing? They're trying to get out that shepherd's hook, and you kind of remember the da 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 and they're trying to pull that sucker away, like, I'm sorry, Jesus had a little too much wine tonight, <laughs> or all those sorts of issues. They're skeptic, embarrassed by Jesus, and yet, James, the brother of Jesus, has an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And this forever twists and changes his very paradigm to the point that when James writes his letter inside the New Testament, that he begins it like this. I, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, I, I would want fame. I would have said, I, Eric, a bondservant of God and the brother of Jesus, in caps, brother. James's identity is, is, is no longer this idea that I'm the brother of Jesus. But his identity has switched from skeptical brother to bondservant of the Lord Jesus. See, all your other identities lay waste to the ultimate identity of being in Jesus, being bound to Jesus, being a bond servant to Jesus. This idea of bond servant means to describe one who is bound to another or in the state of being completely controlled by another. In the present context, uh, describing one not controlled of old flesh nature and desires but the new nature that is submitted and controlled by the Holy Spirit. That you're controlled by Jesus. So, what I'm watching is controlled by Jesus. I made the mistake of flipping on through some, you ever scan channels? I'm, 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 about, I'm about to be 40 here in a few months, and I've, I've realized something. I'm old because I used to listen to gangster rap pre-Jesus and now all music is seemingly annoying to me that comes on the radio. So I'm like, I just want to listen to talking. Let's find some more talking. Let's find some more talk. I don't even know what they're talking, even on PBS where it sounds like they're all whispering to each other. I made the mistake of scanning and it stopped on a local station and it was like the dirtiest, nastiest song I've heard in quite some time. And, and it was like a train wreck though that you can't not look at. Because I, I was like holding my hand like this close to the button as I'm driving down the road. Because I just cannot believe what I'm listening to. So what I'm listening to is, is it controlled by the person and work of Jesus? What I watch, what I attune my mind to, what I spend my time doing. See, some of us are, are addicted to refreshing Facebook, believing in the 0.2 seconds that we had just not list, looked at it, that something new is going to happen. And we're constantly refreshing 
this idea, does Jesus control that time? But does, does Jesus not only control what is visible by others, but we must ask the question, is Jesus controlling what no one else sees? See, to Paul, he was bound by this. He was a bond servant of this. He was, I mean, let's all face it. We, we are people that are cool to help out as long as it doesn't interfere with our time, our treasure, and our talents. If, if everything works together, then sure, we will give ourselves to the church, to the cause of Christ, to the mission of Jesus. And yet for the illustration that we see from Paul is what? That, that he is, is constantly saying, or he says to the church, right? He's like, imitate me as what? As I imitate Christ. See, this idea of, of it not being about our will, but being about God's will is ultimately a reflection of Jesus. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 22 through 24, he says, and he said this to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever who would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Later on in John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of, who, of him who sent me. I will often ask people in counseling sessions, are you willing to do whatever it takes? And you know what? In every one of those counseling sessions, I've never had anyone tell me no but they have shown me no repetitively in their actions. I mean, I, 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 will you do whatever it takes? Whatever it takes. In order to do the will of God. Will you sell that house? Will you sell that car? Will you move to a, a neighborhood where uh, close to Hope House, where the people aren't the same color as you? They don't have the same economical status as you. I was humbled this week as I watched the testimony of a man who had, he, he had lived a life in a homosexual relationship. And I heard this week about him him coming to know Jesus, that he, had, he was playing house, he was essentially in a partnership in a, in a cultural marriage with another man. He loved this man. This man loved him. They had a house together. They did life together. They had their meals together. It was, it was case in point like, like many uh, um, heterosexual marriages. This guy was in that sort of relationship. And he said he remembered one day that after eight years of being with this man, that he fell under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and of the gospel. But he had to do the will of the Father. And then he said, I will never forget the moment where I had to go to my husband, who was not where I was, who did not have the convictions, who loved me, and I loved him. And had to break it all for the cause and the will of Christ. And in almost tears, this man tells me, or tells us, I still love him. But I love Jesus more. That Jesus is and was worth it. Another story that's very similar to that, I don't have time to go into it, Google Rosita Butterfield, read her book, watch her testimony, lifestyle of, of being a homosexual, comes to know Jesus. 
Maybe it's not as extreme, brothers and sisters, as maybe we're thinking, man, well, I'm, I'm not a homosexual or, or, or this or that, but I, I want you to get the seriousness of, of what Paul is illustrating, what Jesus is ultimately illustrating, whatever the master wants, like I'm all in, I've written a blank check with my life, I'm in this, Jesus, whatever you want, there's nothing more important. I even heard from, uh, I think it was John Piper this week, he said, if you had to choose between eating breakfast and reading the Bible and you can only do one, don't eat. Read the word. Be in the word. Long for it. Love it. Be about the mission of God, the person of God. Be captivated, longing for, chained to Jesus because according to everything else compared to who Jesus is and being his prisoner, it is all rubbish. This is why Jesus can pray in the garden as sweat becomes like great drops of blood. What? Not my will, but your will be done, Jesus. Paul will tell us that he did not conceive this master plan. It is a mystery that was revealed to him that God was going to unite the Jews and the Gentiles at the church and that this is, has been a mystery. And it's not a mystery like, you know, an M. Night Shyamalan movie or an Agatha Christie book that we'll never, we'll never know. That's not what it means by mystery here. But it was something that was veiled for a time. And in God's perfect will and timing was going to unveil that in hopes of the world coming to know this beautiful. And, and Paul was the, to be used. He was given a specific role in this to be a catalyst of seeing the Jews and Gentiles coming together. And for this reason, I, I'm a prisoner to Jesus. I'm a prisoner to this situation. I'm a prisoner for the cause of Christ. I'm a prisoner for the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is, it is that that is going from generation to generation as sons and men and, and all these things are going to be, this truth is revealed. The gospel has come. This is not Paul's, but it is God's. What does Paul do? Paul is willing to lay down his life for others, specifically the church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, he says, For what we proclaim is not of ourselves. Again, he's showing this is not from me. I didn't create this mission, this truth. But I'm consumed with it. He says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. Galatians 1.10. For I'm now seeking the approval for am I now, excuse me, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Sister, what if that man is, is not another person, but it is you? Brother, what if the man that Paul mentions there, the approval of another man is the way we will often look at it, but what if that man is reflective of that you're seeking your own approval? You're seeking to please yourself because I want you to understand if you are, you are not pleasing God. We are not pleasing God. We are bound to our own motivations. We're bound to all of these things. And so we come from a culture that has heightened the level of what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And though that is true, we must understand that it is not more important than our collective relationship with Jesus. See, all of you are dying to something or someone. The question is, is it Jesus and his church? See, we should never have to beg true believers to be faithful. Because you know what true believers are? Faithful. You never have to guess what each other is doing behind closed doors. Because our, our desire is to be faithful. 
in Christ Jesus through the gospel because Paul is a prisoner of Jesus. He is willing to complete any life assignment that Jesus may send him on. Brothers and sisters, you too have a life assignment. None of us are called to do this exactly the same way or we may be called to the same mission, but the way in which God has called us to achieve that may be very different. Okay? I don't want to come across to you thinking that, that you have been given a special revelation from God like Paul has. Okay? Because I just want you to know if you come tell us that, that and it doesn't, it's not reflective of Scripture, and you're the first one to ever say such and such or believe such and such, that you're in a church that we're going to lovely think, you crazy. Okay? However, every one of you in here, every one of us in here, have been given, one, the opportunity to be captive, held by Jesus. And simultaneously, he has given a mission to every one of us. Mine is to be pastor of Mission Church. One of the pastors of Mission Church. Prayerfully, I'm held captive to that mission because I'm held captive by Jesus. In closing, this. Look at me. Are the, are the marks of being a prisoner for Jesus apparent in your life? Are the, are the marks of your, of your life being captivated by Jesus, being imprisoned by Jesus to his personhood and also to his mission, is that evident in your life? See, brothers and sisters, we are all prisoners of something. We are all bound to something. And how we use our time, talent, and treasure reflects what we are ultimately bound to. If I was to spend time with you, if you were to spend time with me, would you be disappointed in, in me as your brother? If Jonathan could just purposely kind of watch over my life, if like the, the wicked witch, when she's looking into the glass ball and she can see everything that Dorothy's doing, she's like, I'll get you, my pretty. Right? When I was a kid, I was scared to death of that. But if Paul, if, if God in some way could give my brother Jonathan, we're close. This is my brother from another mother right here. But if, 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 if he could look down and see everything that is in my mind, everything that I'm clicking on, every use of, of the time, the things that I am reading, the things that I am watching, would, would my brother worship Jesus even more at the faithfulness that he is seeing inside of his brother? That he could say, when the naysayers come against me, and that brother loves Jesus. And it is evident in his life. Anybody in here have a friend or family member that would answer yes to the baptism questions? You know what the baptism questions are, right? You believe in Jesus. Yes. You believe just died on the cross and resurrected on the third day. Yes. Have you repented of your sins and turned to Jesus? Yes. Be buried with Jesus. Be risen to walk anew. Anybody have any friends that would, could answer all those things? They would say yes, 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 and yes. But you struggle to know and you grieve to know if they really are. See, our responsibility isn't to judge the fruit of the outside world. Guess what? It's rotten fruit. But our responsibility within the church, you will know them by what? Fruit. And I'm telling you, I have friends and family members who would say yes to all of those things 
And yet if they die and I'm asked to do their funeral, I'm telling you, honestly, I do not know what I will say, but I can tell you this, I will not give false hope of a salvation that didn't have fruit in it. But I will preach Jesus and him crucified and resurrected and pray for the mercy and grace of God. I never want my wife and my kids to question and just walk away from here saying, well, my daddy was just a Christian on Sundays. My daddy was a deacon of a church, but he was abusive to my mama. May it never be said of us. Why? Because we are more captivated by Jesus and his mission than anything that this world has to offer. And when we see brothers and sisters, so if Jonathan does look down at my life and he sees something where I'm drifting and going wayward, that he loves me enough to say, hey, buddy, let's, let's, let's get back on track. We are all prisoners of something. We are bound to something. Some of us are bound to slander and to gossip and to money. We're bound to prosperity, comfort, entertainment. We're bound to the quest for ease. Anybody, I'll confess, I'm often drifting toward that. I just want an easy life. And I don't have one. And so even to the point when I see your life and it appears to be easier than mine, I want you to know I can be coveted and jealous. And I confess that to you as a church. It's hard for me to watch your little boys play baseball and basketball, just to be really honest, because my son can't and has no desire to. I just want ease. I just want comfort. can all be bound to those things. Maybe many of us are imprisoned to our phones. If you ever believe that the phone is going off in your pocket and then you realize it's not, it's called a phantom dial. And we're conditioned to believe that it's going off because we're imprisoned to it. We're imprisoned to social media. We're imprisoned to the, to the internet and it's the constant flipping between two or three internet sites, whatever they may be. We're, we're bound to pornography. We're bound to pleasuring the desires of our flesh. Many of us are tied to pills and to drugs. Get this, we're, we're bound to food. Believing that their, their momentary highs will, will comfort and will allow us to escape our current states. Some of us are chained to the unreal, idealistic, perfect marriage. Perfect child. Perfect job. Anytime that you ask how somebody was doing, I guarantee you the top two things that people will say is, I'm really busy or I'm tired. Have you noticed that? I'm just really tired. How you doing? And we're good, just really busy. We're bound to business, we're bound to tiredness even. We can be bound to laziness. We're, we're bound to past hurt. And for some of us in this room, we are bound to unforgiveness. And in that unforgiveness, it is like tying a, a weight around our neck and tossing our hearts off a cliff. Whatever it is, whomever it is, all this reveals that we are imprisoned more to this world than Jesus which hinders the opportunity to be engaged in Jesus' mission. Are you a good steward of God's grace? Are you a good steward of God's property? Is all of your time, all of your talent, all of your treasure, is it God's? Are we good stewards of the gospel who, who, 
who like man, or are we like the man in the parable who buries what God has given us? Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You could probably put, you cannot serve God and blank anything. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus has arrested your heart, he will also arrest our wills. And any time that we put a, a cause a bunch above the cause of Jesus, I want you to know that we are mistaken. Any time that our, our voice becomes louder about anything that is happening in this world, when our statuses and our screams and our emails become more vac valuable or more loud about X, Y, Z than the gospel, I want you to know that it's reflecting something within our hearts that we're more bound to X, Y, Z, that we're more controlled by this than we are captivated by God. So we must ask the question, is, is God not more worthy than your own agenda or the agenda of this world? Hanging above our couch, many of you have been there. We have a big red pleather couch. Don't get it confused. It's pleather. I would not have picked it. My wife loves it. Lay down my life. Because she got me a recliner that's black at the same time. So we worked out a deal. But above our couch, which I hope that all of you will see, our home, and you're invited to our home. We love having you in our home. We love serving you in our home. But it, uh, above it is a big picture, and it's of our favorite hymn at our house, and it's Come Thou Fount. And in Come Thou Fount, there's a stanza that says, Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be, let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it prone to lead the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Many times we read these old songs or sing these old songs and we have no idea the words in them. I mean, y'all are still like thinking, Ebenezer, that's like, an, you know, the headless horseman, that was that dude's name or something. I mean, we're, we're, I encourage you to learn what the words mean. Let that grace now like a fetter. What is a fetter? A fetter is a chain. I like to look at it in the sense of a, a hot air balloon. that is prone to wander to and fro in the wind. But when it is fettered to something bigger and greater, there is stability. So the author of Come Thou Found is saying, you know, let thy grace now, like a chain, like a rope, Bind my wandering heart. Any wandering hearts in here? I'm prone to wonder. I'm prone to be captivated by many things. I am prone to be imprisoned by many things other than the person and work of Jesus and his mission. And yet the gospel calls us and, and, and we should come together this morning and, and just repent before the Lord for, for moments when we have been unequally yoked to the things of this world. And may we not just sing with our lips these types of songs, but may they be the desires and prayers of our hearts this morning that we would be fettered to the very heart and the purpose of God that all other things would be like sinking sand because we are built upon the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone that is Jesus, that we would truly, our affections would just be bubbling over and overflowing because of the person and work of Jesus. May it be so of us, Mission Church. 
may it be true of us that the marks of true Christianity, may they be evident in you and in me and us. May they not be simply yeses, yes, yes, but may everything in our lives exude that we, for this reason, I, Eric, I, Carolee, I, Weesbin, I, Todd, I, Adam, whoever you are, for this reason, I, such and such, am a prisoner of Jesus and to his cause for my life. Let's pray.